HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Southern Peanut Growers, committed to making sustainable more attainable for chefs and cooking enthusiasts worldwide. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila, delicious and smooth tequila, made in harmony with the earth. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. Welcome Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast. The Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome rancher Jesse Smith. In this episode, we're going to talk to Jesse about how the White Buffalo Land Trust puts regenerative agriculture into practice, rebuilding our broken food system. And we'll hear Jesse's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Julia was on a mission to help us understand where good food comes from, and how to make it. In her day, this was more about getting away from supermarket canned and frozen food and using your local butcher, greengrocer, or fishmonger. Her big concern was that we were being encouraged by corporate marketing to stop cooking. In many ways, the current food revolution shows that Julia was successful in her quest. Now, Julia's later career focus was on amplifying chefs, and it was less about the farmers these chefs relied on for the very best ingredients. As a result, agriculture has not been a big focus at the foundation. Until now. Having helped organize the Santa Barbara Culinary Experience and its 2002 Taste of Santa Barbara panel discussion on what it will take to rebuild our broken food system, this really made a big impression. It's really clear that the future of eating well has to include 
how our food is grown and raised. We're not going to be cooking good food if the planet isn't protected, and the means by which our food is grown and raised is not more sustainable and environmentally conscious. We realized that if Julia was still with us, she would be expanding her focus to include advocating for these changes and change makers. The discussion at the Rebuilding Our Food System event was complemented by an in-person visit to local farms so that attendees could experience firsthand the innovative practices they just heard about. Our producer, Lauren Salkeld, and I had the privilege of visiting Halama Canyon Ranch near Lompoc, California. The ranch is part of the White Buffalo Land Trust, which develops and promotes regenerative agriculture systems designed to have a local, regional, and global impact. The trust implements new methods of land stewardship to redesign our food system in ways that address the climate, biodiversity, public health, and food security. For those who don't know, I had to look it up, white buffalo are very rare. Just one in 10 million are born, and that's according to the National Bison Association, so I'm assuming they know their stuff. White buffalo are sacred to the Lakota people and other Native American tribes. The trust's name is a reference to protecting what is most precious, not specifically about raising bison. Someone who has devoted his career to rebuilding the food system through regenerative agriculture is Jesse Smith. Jesse is the White Buffalo Land Trust's Director of Land Stewardship. He guides the operations at Halama Canyon Ranch and works with the trust's team, contractors, and partners on land management strategies as well as community outreach. His expertise is in agricultural system design in order to create systemic shifts in the food economy and ecology. Jesse joins us today to tell us about the White Buffalo Land Trust's work and share how they are helping to restore the planet's health a thousand acres at a time. Welcome to the podcast, Jesse. Thanks so much for having me here today. Well, I'm excited to talk to you. I was so impressed with uh, the whole operation of my visit. It's such an a, a amazing, uh, a, pardon, I was going to use the word experiment. You can correct me if, if, if that's like somehow wrong or offensive, but I mean it in the best possible way. And we felt really strongly about, we were so taken with it, we wanted to, to share it with our audience. But before we talk specifically about the trust and the ranch itself, how did you end up getting involved in working in regenerative agriculture to start with? Yeah, thanks. And uh, no offense taken. I think that uh, what, we, what we're into is really a proposition and um, you know, some of it verges on experimentation and some of it verges on a little bit more of an exploration. And you know, I think that that's really um, what brought me to this field of agriculture in, in, the, in the first place was um, a, a proposition to, to myself around using my background, my my skills in um, in design. I, I come from a field of uh, visual communication design, graphic design, product design, um, and uh, really a, a proposition of how do we bring a design process, a design thinking into living systems and and uh, in our into our food system. And what that really looked like at the time was. Um, having a deep love of food, when you really kind of love the the gathering of people, the um, the culture that really emerges out of the kitchen, um, you know, you want to have that be accessible to as many people as possible, and you want it to be unique in uh, your community, and that really 
kind of set myself as well as um, my wife and our family on a journey to start a farm and start one that really reflected the principles that we felt were important to express within um, the unique place in which we lived. Um, and that that was about uh, 10 years ago in 2012. Um, and it took us into um, a whole new learning journey around making uh, artisan cheeses and raising heritage breed pigs and chickens and turkeys and growing biointensive market gardens and um, growing mushrooms and microgreens and uh, having an education platform. And it really kind of showed what um, opportunities there were in a diversified form of agriculture. But it also really highlighted a lot of the limitations of um, of what we needed to address in our food system in order to truly make that um, plausible for, for more growers and producers. Um, and that stretched from everything from distribution channels to um, policy and permitting to um, processing facilities for, for livestock, uh, as well as just the the kind of current paradigm of thinking within the the culture around um, where our values lay within uh, the food system, how we valued um, kind of uh, nutrient density, uh, possibly instead of, uh, you know, quantity or size or homogeneity. Um, and so that really has been the, the last 10 years of, of my life. Uh, my wife and I work together and um, what we're raising our kids within as well. I think that's fascinating that you have come to it. And I wonder if you think that's maybe why you were more open to change or taking a different approach that you don't come from maybe a traditional farming or ag training background. Do you, do you think that's true? Or may, maybe did you grow up on a farm? Yeah, most definitely. I think that that's a, that has a huge part of it when you kind of come from a, a an alternative perspective in agriculture. Um, granted, my, my, my grandfather was a was a rancher. Um, I grew up with my, my mother on just a small piece of land, you know, but we had, you know, a small orchard, we had chickens, we had, you know, a couple horses. Like it was, you know, I always grew up on land connected to land, but it mm. never was kind of the subsistence farming family that a lot of people in um, our modern culture kind of grew up in and, and leave because it's, it sometimes is uninspiring or there aren't the opportunities to really uh, grow and, and express yourself within and, you know, your unique thoughts on how things are run. Um, sometimes when the older generation is around, that's, that's not what we do. That's, this is how we do it. And, and for me coming to this allowed, um, in the way I did allowed for more of, as I mentioned before, a proposition of, you know, possibly can we do this different? And I wasn't the only one, obviously there's a global community of people that are asking that, that, that question. Um, and that really is, um, emboldening when you have, um, people not only, you know, regionally, but uh, in the four corners of the world who are looking across the bow of their own kind of ship and, and, and nodding approval as to, yeah, we, we all see this, this new opportunity on the horizon. So let's talk about that opportunity in what the White Buffalo Land Trust mission is and, and how are you now putting that into practice both across the trust and at Halama Canyon Ranch? Yeah, thanks. Um, so the, the organization was really um, founded around this, you know, idea and this structure that, um, we needed to do the work. We needed to have our, our feet on the ground. We needed to have our hands in the soil. We needed to be, um, out there actually exemplifying what we, um, espouse to be, you know, a, a potentially future form of agriculture. So our, our main kind of core field of focus is, you know, direct land stewardship. 
Um, and that's where you mentioned our, our ranch uh, at Halama. Uh, the Halama Canyon Ranch is really our center for regenerative agriculture. It's where we get to invite people into the conversation. But we also recognize that there were um, these other fields that were complementary and, and necessary uh, to really see seeing the shift we wanted to see in, in, in this world. Um, and those other fields are around education and training. Um, you were able to experience, you know, one of our education programs where we invite people out and, and hopefully raise the ecological literacy of our community, where we get to engage with, with children and, and learners of all ages around these principles of regeneration. And people can really immerse themselves in a living ecosystem. They can stand under the oaks or they can stand in a, a pasture or, you know, pluck some grapes from a vine. And, and as we talk about all the t- intricacies of, of that system, um, people can see it, feel it, smell it, taste it, um, and hear it. And, and that's really for the broader community. Um, you know, food service professionals, educators, uh, healthcare professionals, policy advisors, all of those. Uh, but we also have in that a training component where we feel that the technical skill sets for our uh, fellow land stewards, farmers and ranchers, are really needing to be um, displayed and, and shared and discussed. So we uh, feel one of our roles is really to invite in those thought leaders, those uh, those other land stewards, those educators who really are able to train um, on a peer-to-peer network um, the other land stewards. We have holistic management trainings around livestock grazing. We have kind of an all hands on training that focuses on composting and nutrient cycling or on plant propagation and nursery development or or land design. Um, you know, how we actually um, kind of lay out plan um, and phase our implementation of regenerative systems. So that's our education and training program. Um, the other one is our, our research, uh, data, uh, science, uh, understanding that and a lot of our culture these days is still rooted very much in the epistemology of um, kind of higher education, scientific process, um, and uh, and that being and, and data information being the root of our knowing. Um, and so we we recognize that being able to support um, recommendations or or our own learned understandings through. Um, metrics and monitoring, both qualitative and quantitative, is going to be imperative for us to be able to um, leave a legacy where the next generation can pick up and 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 grow upon uh, what we have done. Um, and so um, we work with both um, other institutions uh, to provide access for their grad students and researchers uh, to ask questions. We we collect our own data in service of kind of uh, certifications and verification modules. Um, as well as uh, we gather information that helps us better understand how we should adapt our management and 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 help um, identify opportunities to increase ecological fun- function through um, access to more information. So that's our kind of research um, and uh, scientific research uh, field of focus. And then this all kind of culminates in our, our, our final field of focus, which is enterprise development, product development. Um, and I believe that kind of all three of the first fields, you know, the direct land stewardship, education and training and scientific research all kind of roll up into um, a forward facing um, kind of market driven opportunity for everyone um, to make a decision, you know, uh, to, to choose this over that, to sit there in the grocery store and decide to either clothe your family in or feed your family with um, uh, a product or a, a service uh, that has 
the opportunity to do better, to, 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 to have a positive impact, you know, um, uh, doing less harm is no longer good enough. We actually have to invest in things um, that, that evolve and, and develop and, and mature uh, with age and, and hopefully actually um, have a net positive benefit on, in our, on our ecology and our economy and our community's health. Um, and so we, we both sell products from the farm uh, to other value-added producers like our grapes, uh, working with um, you know, winemakers, uh, we we work with partners in our beef a beef company to to raise um, grass finished cow, cattle and uh, into their um, grass finishing program. Um, and we also started um, a food brand um, called Figure Eight Foods um, in order to uh, aggregate raw agricultural commodities, you know, from a field of producers who are doing better, but then package them, value add them, package them. In, in a way where we can actually um, hold a little bit more sway over the storytelling. And so we have a persimmon vinegar, um, we have a, a beef biltong, a, a kind of dry cured beef biltong. Um, and, and those are just kind of a couple of our, our first skews under uh, figure eight foods. So that, that kind of gives you an arc of kind of the fields of the organization, but also um, kind of how at Halama Kenya Ranch we're exemplifying kind of all of those different facets through through our work. So Halama Canyon is both a working ranch and has some farming aspects to it. And then on top of that, you they kind of interplay with the research you're doing on what you're growing and raising. And then in turn, you do data collection and analysis and work with partners to kind of bring it all together full circle. Is that is that a good encapsulation of yeah, yeah, that that that's that's accurate. You know, the the ranch is a thousand acre ranch. Uh, we have small five acre vineyard. Um, we run cattle. We run goats. We have a small olive orchard, um, and we have in the next couple of years plans on on new cropping systems and new animal systems to integrate as well. But you you exemplified the kind of relationship with other stakeholders and programs very well. Thank you. And it, it helps to have been there. <laughs> I probably couldn't have done that. And and speaking of, I think I have been there, but most of our audience won't have. And I think the the climate of, in what we're talking about matters. So could you just describe this sort of physical environment and and sort of what your maybe you could say your the assets and benefits, but also the challenges you get compared to other places. And you know, remember that some people may not immediately recognize that the difference between ranch land and farmland and, you know, that all, la all land is not equal in terms of its valuable use. Yeah, that's great, great uh, way of phrasing that. And um, I think we come from a perspective that all, all land and all people are unique, you know, and, and when you design um, within that context, noting that the, the people that are stewarding a piece of uh, land um, create a, a, a situation where, um, it is not like any other, um, then it gives you the opportunity just to truly ask that question about, you know, what is the highest and best use of my life's energy here on this property? Um, so the the Holoma Canyon Ranch is uh, a thousand acre um, ranch at the uh, kind of pinnacle of California uh, near Point Conception. So we're um, kind of central California coast right at the elbow of, 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 uh, um, of California, um, about 10 miles as the crow flies uh, from the coastline. Uh, the property itself sits at the upper limit of the, the watershed. It's actually the, the inland valley watershed, not, not the coastal watershed. But what, what's unique about it is that 
it is its own micro catchment, which is to say that, um, you know, all the rain that falls, all the precipitation falls on this property, flows through the property and not outwards um, onto neighbor property. And because we're at the upper limit, um, nobody else drains into this uh, landscape as well. So it gives the opportunity to, to, to discover the impacts of our land stewardship on uh, hydrology, on water, on, on how it works on, on the property itself. Um, but what we are um, kind of blessed with is working within the context of uh, kind of a coastal Medi- Mediterranean climate. So you, as many people know, the Mediterranean um, uh, regions around the world are some of the most fruitful, um, agriculturally speaking, um, and and the coastal climates have the added ba- benefit of um, the ocean as a climate buffer. So you know we don't we don't have hard frosts and freezes, and um, and we don't um, get extreme heat events. I'm not saying it doesn't get hot there. We are definitely on a, on, a, on a rise on that front. But having a big thermal mass like the Pacific Ocean helps to buffer some of those extremes. Um, we also sit at um, uh, uh, kind of a uh, confluence of energies of Northern California and Southern California. So we get extreme wind events in our area. Um, We also are right on the kind of cusp of multiple um, kind of uh, geologic formations in the the large kind of fault line that is kind of uh, pushing through California. And we're right at the pinnacle of that. So we get a lot of different soil types and, and topographic features. So we are very topographically diverse property, lots of hills, uh, mountains. And, and to your point, um, it's one of the reasons why the property is more suited to kind of ranching. And um, if we can call it uh, farming, it would be more of a perennial crop farming. So tree crops um, and not so much suited to uh, annual uh, flat field, uh, heavy, heavy, heavy input uh, row crop uh, systems because we just don't have a lot of flat land, and and that limits your access and your ability to uh, to, to work in those uh, those kind of situations. Um, so you know our our property itself um, is made up of um, what we like to call kind of the five major vegetation types of um, not only our kind of region, um, but Mediterranean regions around the world, which uh, would be kind of rangeland, grassland uh, environs. Um, You know, these are now uh, more European annual dominated grasslands um, with some remnant perennial native grasses. Uh, We have our oak woodlands, oak forests, um, oak savannas, you know, the the, the dotted landscape of um, our, our coast live oak. And we also have some really unique um, uh, um, tan, tan oaks on the property. Uh, we also have uh, the coastal sage brush and, and chaparral, you know, our, our shorter stature, um, kind of brushes and, and, and such, um, very thick. Um, and then we have our, our snaking riparian corridors, you know, in the valleys of the, of the property where water flows, you have a different vegetation type along the, the banks of, of these riparian corridors. Um, and then, um, you ultimately have the the managed agroforestry, the the orchards and vineyards, our our um, our wine grapes, our our olive orchards, and between the the grasses, the sages, the oaks, the riparian, and then the the, the managed agroforestry, those five ecological sites are really what we're looking at discussing in the context of uh, bringing regenerative principles um, to the landscape for 
um, regional uh, and global impact. You know, so we, we do the work here, but people around our region can all look across uh, the fence line and say, okay, well, I have that vegetation type too at this kind of elevation or, you know, at this kind of slope. And, and, and I can learn something. It might look a little bit different on my property, um, but the principles of your approach are applicable. And I think that that was really important for us um, between having to be the, the ability to demonstrate um, at scale some of these um, impacts, as well as having a closed, um, a closed catchment basin for the, the water and hydrology monitoring. Well, th thank you for setting the stage. I think that it really helps. And you kind of left out that it's really beautiful there too, because, because of those natural phenomenons. Um, but, but I think it's also important because it's very much a hilly ranch. It's not a Midwestern flat. It, it's not a thousand acres of just rolling wheat fields. It, it, and it's not even a, it's not flat like a Texas ranch might be. Um, it, it's, it's, it's a different type of, as you say, very Mediterranean. Uh, terrain and, and, and in Mediterranean-like climate. All right, we're going to take a break, and we'll be back with more from land steward and rancher Jesse Smith. Stay with us. This episode is proudly supported by Southern Peanut Growers, who are spreading the word about peanut sustainability. As the planet's resources are strained to meet the nutritional needs of its populations, many responsible chefs are doing their part by sourcing local and sustainably raised food. Many are surprised to learn that peanuts are one of the most sustainable plant-based proteins available. Southern Peanut Growers created the campaign Making Sustainable More Attainable in partnership with award-winning chef Stephen Satterfield. Together, they're bringing the sustainability message to chefs nationwide, whether it's conserving water, minimizing fertilizers, or achieving zero waste, peanuts are a logical choice for your next menu. Southern peanut growers represent farmers across Georgia, Florida, Mississippi, and Alabama. For more information, visit www.peanutbutterlovers.com. I'm Chaba Periban, co-host of Agave Road Trip on HRN here to talk about 818 Tequila. 818 creates their tequila using traditional methods that a family-owned and operate distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. From the blue agave they grow to their recycled glass bottle, 818 emphasizes the Earth's importance in all they do. Their distillery runs on biomass and solar power, which means they don't rely as much on fossil fuels and are able to reduce their carbon footprint. Their labels, corks, and boxes are all certified by the Forest Stewardship Council as coming from sustainability-managed forests. 818 is a proud member of 1% for the Planet, through which they support HRN as well as Sacred, my organization in Jalisco, where together we transform agave byproducts and water waste into adobe bricks that are donated to local infrastructure projects, like a local library in Zapotitlan de Vadillo. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their sustainability efforts and find 818 near you. 818 has been part of so many magical nights for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. Welcome back. We're talking how regenerative agriculture is key to saving our planet and broken food system with Jesse Smith, Director of Land Stewardship, at the White Buffalo Land Trust in Santa Barbara County. So 
Jesse, you just gave us a really beautiful picture of what Halama Canyon Ranch is and isn't and where it is. And I was just curious. So you, you know, the ranch is relatively new venture. Um, I think you've been there about a year. I was curious what, you know, what have you been able to see progress and changes already? Are you still very much in the beginning phases of of either shifting the, the the land use or figuring out what how you can be regenerative and sustainable on what was someone else's ranch land before. Yeah, I think that um, yes, yes to both. Um, so yes, we are very much in the in the early throes of this. You know, our organization closed escrow on the property um, in April of 2021. So we've just surpassed you know our our first year of being. Uh, primary decision makers uh, on this on this land base, but that being said, within that short amount of time, there are some um, markedly important outcomes of the decisions and um, that we've made. And you know, something that really kind of I recall and, and reflect um, positively on is you know we've we actually had a um, an ecological monitoring course, a five day course with about fifteen students that we hosted. Um, April of 2021. So it was the, it started the weekend we closed escrow before we really were able to land there. We had already had planned, um, to have this course around ecological monitoring in order to baseline where we were, we were starting. And so we run, we run it, we, each spring. And so we were able to come back April of 2022 this year and to see the lead facilitator and some of the students from the first cohort who came back as support facilitators, um, mark um, where their identification of ecological function had greatly changed in just a year was really amazing to me because, you know, sometimes when you're in it every day, it's hard to see that change, you know, and, and that's really the role of some of these monitoring protocols is to obviously collect the data, but also uh, like the, 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 the quantitative data, but also to have a framework for qualitative um, assessment. You know, this is what I see, and I'm going to put it within this framework so that next year when I come back, I can recall what I saw then and re- and, and actually compare what I see now. And so one of the things that really um, stood out and, and one of our kind of key indicators of ecological health for us is um, is our native perennial grasses, you know, bunch grasses that, um, that would have really covered much of uh, the landscape in, in the... Um, kind of arid west and in, in, in a lot of these rangeland environments, these grasslands environments. Um, and knowing a little bit about their life cycle, you can understand why their their numbers are depleted, their health is depleted because of the ever presence of, of grazing practices and their inability in many cases to fully recover during the non-growing season. Um, and so when we have moisture and, and they're happy, then it's great. We can graze them. But if it, when it's really dry and, and moisture has been sapped from the soil um, and they're the only things that are remaining that's green out there, um, a lot of times they're the first to get overgrazed. Um, and so one of the things that we really um, took to heart was designing a system in service of their life cycle. And thus that um, – led us to a grass finishing operation where we actually only graze cattle on the land uh, during our growing season. So once again, when we have moisture and when we have some heat. Um, so this starts in in, in uh, winter and late December um, and goes through right about now, you know, early summer, midsummer. 
Um, but then we won't we won't have large herbivores grazing on the landscape for the majority of summer and, and fall when we just don't have the water and and, and plants need time to rec- recover. Um, but just through that first year when we when we destocked the previous owner's uh, cattle and gave the property um, time to recover until winter to watch what happened in those pastures and to watch the perennial grasses recover of the way that they did was already an amazing indicator for us um, of, you know, how resilient uh, nature is and how much it wants to bounce back and support um, human existence as well as itself. Um, so that was just one that was really, really markedly important for us. And, and that we're, all, we're excited about tracking through time. Well, I think that that's a great example. And I wanted to ask you to maybe clarify that. Um, does that mean then that unlike maybe what we might think about, like a rancher raises their own cows and then sells cows, for example, and sells them to slaughter? Are you actually, in this case, it's really about the land and when the cattle that graze for a shorter time, are they actually someone else's cattle and you're actually using the cattle more to manage the land than you are in the business of like selling, raising and selling meat? Not, not, not saying that at all. I, I would say that those are two parts of the same coin where um, in order to pay for the, the land health to, to actually have the positive land benefit, we have to be in the, um, in the business also of raising a product that ultimately supports our, our, our management and labor that goes into it. But we did in this instance partner with a beef company to graze their cattle for them that then go to harvest directly from our ranch. So as, as, as you may, you know, know that, you know, one of the, um, the larger value adds in the meat business is, is, um, grass fed, especially in beef, you know, people want to know that their animals are not, um, you know, finished their, their life is not finished in a CAFO, a confined feeding lot. Um, and so people want to have their animals grazed on, uh, open pastures and finished on grass. And so we can offer that opportunity, um, to a beef company in Northern California that it has seasonality that doesn't link with the market opportunity. So we, we will essentially finish animals on our property, um, that will then go to market. Um, and that may be, we, we love, trust me, we love the relationship. It was, it was Richard's grass fed beef. They're a fantastic outfit in Northern California, but it's not the only way to, um, uh, to, to meet that need. It just met our context in these early years to have a partner like that. Um, we may in future years end up buying our own cattle and grazing those and finishing those and then selling them to, to Richard's grass fed beef instead of them buying the cattle. We may in future years have our own beef company. It's not necessarily in the plans right now. Um, but I'm just saying that it, it doesn't necessitate having to run the same operation we're running in order to design a system that meets the ecological needs of the property. The, the important thing to take away from this is just understanding the unique life cycles of, of keystone uh, entities or keystone um, uh, elements of your, of your land base um, and designing your management practices to support their kind of long-term benefit. Um, so even if you had, you know, a resident herd, it's just understanding where they are, how long they're there and um, how long they need to be gone until they come back um, and appropriately sizing your operation or or finding the right animals or or management practices to meet that need. 
That's very helpful. So take us even bigger picture then from that example to how does, because I, I'm conscious of that I've talked a lot about, you know, we're having a conversation about rebuilding our broken food system. You're talking about the the very helpful, specific regenerative initiatives at Alama Ranch, but how does that tie together? Like, how is this part of an effort to rebuild what I've called a broken food system? Yeah. And you're, you, you know, you're not the only one. I think we recognize, you know, maybe to varying degrees that there are, are definitely broken pieces to our food system. And, and in some places, you know, it's not broken. It's actually just disconnected, you know, and it's, so it's reconnecting this, this, this food web, you know, this network of, of people, of, um, of, of land bases, of, um, of customers. And so, you know, one of the things that we're trying to recognize is in our role, kind of where there are uh, these keystone um, crops or keystone um, uh, operations that really hold a piece of the ecological, uh, the, the kind of cultural, social, as well as the economic importance at this time and place. Um, and so that's why we we felt it was Im- Im- imperative that we addressed um, cattle and and beef. Uh, you know, it's part of the it's a major part of the American diet. It's a major part of the Western identity, um, and it's a major impact on um, our our ecological kind of functioning. Um, and so we knew that that was going to be a big one. But another one is 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 wine grapes. Uh, another one is is almonds. Um, another one is cotton. You know, these are these are all things that we have deep questions around and, and the list goes on and on. But we were able to identify ones that had a strategic overlap between um, our our understanding, um, our, our partners understanding and and where we understood we 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 actually sat in in the, the actual physical region, like what we could actually um grow or have access to. And so I, I, I mentioned almonds and cotton, um, not because we're growing those at uh, Halamakayan Ranch, but we do have um, project partners in two um, other kind of multi-year studies and implementation projects out in the Central Valley um, with with almonds and, and and cotton as well. And you can check out the, the almondproject.com uh, for, for more on that. Well, I want to come back to the cotton in in, in a second because that it, anyone who's driven up the five freeway and seen cotton growing in the desert is is always a little flummoxed. Um, but I, I think what you were talking about does that relate to what you're trying to demonstrate a, as a research entity? Is that a, a, the approach to land stewardship is very much based on what is the highest and best use of this land in this place? And then connecting it rather than imposing, I want to grow or raise this here regardless. Well, I think there's, um, I think there's two prongs to that. One is what you just stated is that if you are, um, if you are a, uh, an organization or, or an entity, a person, a family, you know, who comes to um, a situation where you are making management decisions over a land base um, there should always be that deep question around what is uh, the highest and best use for uh, for this property um, in the context of the different entities you're trying to affect. So one of those might be yourself or your business. You know, how do I make sure that I'm able to continue to run my business here? The other one might be 
um, you know, the watershed or, you know, oak woodlands or kind of a rare and endangered species? Like, how do I actually design a system that's in service of this, knowing that that's a keystone element of, of the overall function of this land base? Um, and there's going to be a balancing in all of that because you're also going to inherit the byproduct of previous uh, land steward decisions that you you may already have um, a vineyard on your property. And even if you were to deem, you know, just for example, <laughs> hypothetically, you know, even if you were to deem this is not the highest and best use and this is not the appropriate place. And I'm not saying that as far as our vineyard, I, you know, I'm just saying that you're going to inherit these previous decisions and then you're going to have to make a decision. Well, does it make sense for me to tear this whole thing out or does it make sense for me to manage it in a way that evolves its capacity to support the larger system in which it's nested. And I think that that's why I mentioned this two-prong approach, because in some instances, we're coming to uh, areas of Halama Canyon Ranch and saying, gosh, you know, it's, 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 it's an opportunity for us to bring these principles of regeneration into play. And we believe that the highest and best use is, um, say, growing um, a native Western blue elderberry as part of a riparian restoration program that also has a, a really great opportunity for a value added product as, you know, elderberry syrups and elderberry tinctures and elderberry flavored products are on the rise around the world. People taking health into their own hands. It's a native product. It can be dry farmed. It creates habitat, like all these great things. Like, so that's one end, end of it. The other end of it is, you know, hey, there's a lot of people who are growing cotton and and almonds out in the central valley and you know the in the way that they're producing them is really really um impactful on the aquifer and and water use it's really impactful on um kind of biology because of all the the herbicides and and chemical fertilizers and you could say well they don't belong out there rip them out or you can ask the questions of what are some steps what are some some incremental steps that we can start to evolve those those practices, that we can start to reduce the chemical inputs, that we can start to shift the thinking of the land stewards and the, the buyers and the, the processors in a way where everyone can start to see their role in evolving those systems, maybe more integrating more diversity into the cropping systems, maybe looking at more biological processes instead of chemical processes to, to manage the system. And so you're also trying to evolve kind of this this really embedded and entrenched cultural um, paradigm. We, we you know cotton is you know so huge and almond is so huge. Those market shares are so huge that we're not just telling everyone to go rip them out of the ground. We're trying to play a supporting role in their own developmental process. So that's why it's it's a little bit of you know trying to walk some things back and as well as trying to promote new growth within other fields. Well, I, I love that response because that that's fascinating. And I think oftentimes when people have an environmental or, or consciousness bent, that you know, wrong place, wrong product, change it. But I, I think that's a really interesting uh, approach that is a little bit more reasonable in a way of, um, and also more less wasteful because obviously someone's put in all kinds of resources to to start this thing. And I think what you're saying is. You found you can grow cotton in California, but the maybe the goals of, of how you do it and the inputs you need are different. And I assume one of the big things that you're addressing that you haven't mentioned, but is that the American and, and global farming system has been you know, really laser focused on yield and that's governed everything. And I assume one of the things that you guys are looking at with cotton is 
is the type of cotton that you would grow in California should your goal be yield maximization versus some uh, some other benefit or attribute like higher quality or lusciousness? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I think that you know there are certain constraints within um, the system that require a certain quality um, and a certain quantity. Um, but a lot of times, what can be recognized, is, you know, and this is obviously obviously simple, like to 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 make ends meet, you either, you know, need to increase your 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 quantity produced or uh, the margins on what you produce or the, you know, the actual amount that you can, you know, sell or, or, or whatnot. And the the biggest thing for us is finding a way to um, increase the margins for producers. So, you know, can we keep production um, you know, similar or if it goes down a little bit because of a byproduct of of kind of a more holistic approach to production that we can make up for that loss of production through an increased um, kind of value proposition in the marketplace where they can actually get a premium um, for for their product. And that's really kind of coming back to kind of bundling the co-benefits of a shifting approach so that, um, that the story can, I mean, we've all recognized that, you know, people's farmer rancher stories are of value. You know, the, the, uh, God, what I see the other day, box of Cheerios that has like, like farmland program or so farm, their farmland cereal, uh, series all over it. And they're talking about the farmer. They're talking about the, the farming of the grain that's going into, you know, Cheerios, you know, the, the thing that's just so iconic. And it just reminded me of if they don't have some link back to an actual, land base to producers to to tell that story then they don't get to you know go out on a limb and make that major claim out in the marketplace so the story of what the farmers are doing is is important and it's of value and so a lot of that once again comes back to um, the data that's being collected you know there's obviously the impact that we want to show but it's also putting the 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 brand um, and the processor and the producer in in the room um, at the same time, because a lot of times they never talk to each other. And so, you know, one of the land-based partners on our, our um, C4 project, this is the uh, California um, Climate Cotton Coalition. Um, one of the the producers, uh, partners on that front, he was, we were sitting in the room. He goes, I've never met anyone that's bought my cotton. You know, he's like, I've never talked to them, you know. And and likewise, we have, you know, this this cohort of brands that are in this room that have access to sit out on a ranch in the or the farm in the Central Valley in the midst of cotton fields and talk to the people who are growing it and ask questions about the limitations around, you know, one of, one of the big ones is, is, is obviously the amount of, of herbicides and, and uh, that are sprayed, you know, on, on the cotton. Um, and, you know, there's a, there's a big history, obviously, in cotton, uh, growing in this country that, you know, is a little bit of the the elephant in the room. And it's like, you know, a lot of cotton production and the price of cotton was subsidized by slavery. And so the expectations of cost and production started there with free labor. And so when you then have to shift away from that towards the new paradigm, what is now subsidizing it is essentially chemical inputs. Of, of how we essentially prepare cotton for 
the combine and, and spraying it to kill all the leaves in order to provide access to harvest all the cotton bowls. And in certain places, it's quote unquote easier in order to grow organically because you have a frost event. You know, you can actually get the, 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 the leaves of the cotton plant to die just by natural patterns of a frost event. In California, a lot of times we never get that frost event. So in order to knock those leaves off, they got to spray them. And that's just a real like life cycle of this plant in this place limitation to growing organic cotton. And so there's, can you use steam to do it? Can you, you use, use sheep to do it? Like these are the questions that people are asking. And these are what these projects are for is to ask questions around how to grow these crops in a way that meets market needs, market crop prices, and where there is latitude on all these different stakeholders within producers, processors, and brands in order to, to, to show, you know, good faith. I, I can, I can budge on that. I can add, you know, that many more units, or I can do uh, spend this little bit more money um, in order to make it work. If that's the important thing for me, you know, of, of, you know, organic certified or not using chemical fertilizers, whatever it may be, then I can, I can, uh, I can make that shift on my side. So, um, yeah, I'll, I'll kind of pause there, but, you know, I think that these are big, complex systems and I, and it's required in our opinion to have the different stakeholder groups in the room to have these conversations. Um, and we have found the most traction when we have the producers, the brands, the processors and the research science teams, um, all, oh, and, and, and the communication, you know, ha having the storytellers, the photographers, the videographers, um, also in the room as well. So. Before we go to the break, I just want to ask you one last question. So because because I'm wondering this myself is, is the goal of the White Buffalo Land Trust. Is it is it more on the science and research and advocacy side and the, this, you know, um, joining up of stakeholders or is it or or maybe it's and or doing other thousand acre living laboratories where you're learning and sharing like is, is the growth plan in both directions or it's act, it's less about land and more about learning and partnerships and, and that kind of development that you just described with the cotton example? No, I would say that our, our um, focus is really rooted in our work at Halama Canyon Ranch and the Center for Regenerative Agriculture, because this is really where where our organization and its, you know, our its founder and directors are are grounded in place. This is where our families are. This is where we grew up. This is where this is where we know and love the food culture and the landscape. I mean, where we have the relationships. So going and looking for other places to buy other thousand acre ranches or you know to start other projects um, isn't necessarily what we're seeking to do. Um, that being said. You know, doing work with regional partners, for example, the Cotton Project is a partnership with um, Fiber Shed of Northern California. You know, they're obviously directly focused on the fiber industry. And so we have a really great working relationship with, with their team. And this this Cotton Project kind of came about through through that relationship and, and the blend of our relationships. Um, the, the Almond Project um, is a, a blend of work with multiple brands. Um, in order to kind of find traction within this field, uh, shifting field of, of almond production. So these are all ones where um, I'm not out there running the tractor. You know, we're not the one out there drilling seed or spreading compost. Um, but we're helping 
um, kind of as thinking partners in the kind of experimental design of the research of the management plans uh, with with others. Um, but it comes back to us being able to really demonstrate these principles that we believe are globally applicable out at Halama Canyon Ranch. Um, and that those express themselves on that ranch in very specific practices that are unique to us in time and place, but that we can educate and research and in order for other people to discover what practices are derived from these principles on their land bases. Well, I think it's all very exciting. And I think, uh, um, it's very hopeful because you can you can see that there is possibility of solving some of these really profound uh, challenges when people are as committed as as you and the folks at the White Buffalo Land Trust. All right, we're going to take a break and we'll hear Jesse's Julia moment. Let us know what you think of today's show. Send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org or better yet, tweet us at juliachildjcf. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she might have inspired them in their career. Jesse, what's your Julia moment? <laughs> um, well, I mean, other than the fact that my my wife and I cannot cook or saute mushrooms in the kitchen which, uh, without somehow doing our, our best, worst rendition of Julia Childs telling each other to not uh, crowd, not don't crowd the mushrooms in the pan. Mm. Um, <laughs> but um, you know, it's it's funny because you know I, I'm obviously in a in a generation um, who didn't get to grow up with her um, as you know a, a figure to to look up to um, in the direct sense, but you know have have more been able to experience her the magnitude of her impact on our food system and. Um, and, and just what it means to be uh, a cook or a chef um, in the kitchen through um, kind of her legacy. And I do remember, you know, in uh, kind of the early uh, years of, of my, my wife, my now wife at that time, girlfriend and fiance getting together was when that movie Julie and Julia came out. And I think I, wa- I think I watched it with her first and um and I, and I and it had a profound effect on us because of the fact that we were watching, you know, someone in a relationship who fell in love with this this person through a cookbook. And we just are, are consummate lovers of, of cookbooks. Our house is covered with them. I have more cookbooks than um, I know what to do with. But we just that's our. That's our passion is sitting around, you know, a fire or, you know, with a glass of wine and flipping through cookbooks and earmarking recipes. Um, And through that that movie where she, you know, decided to work her way through Julia Child's cookbook, um, we got the idea of um, every year uh, actually uh, choosing one of our cookbooks and having to cook every recipe in that cookbook within the year. Oh, wow. And it and it's you know some years have panned out some years have <laughs> haven't as well 
Um, but but the the once again, like the underlying principle of it was to like really start to embody through the lens of a person who took the time. You think about how much time it takes to you know, write a really good cookbook that is either based in a place or, you know, a a certain style um, and and really try to, like, dive into that person's love of of food. And um, and it really has it's it's become kind of a hallmark of our relationship and um, as well as kind of what we we like to impart, you know, in our friend group as well as we we gift a lot of cookbooks and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, that's that, that would be what I would share as my Julia moment. And I think that that will not only ripple through the rest of my life, but hopefully will also be imparted on our, our two daughters who, um, you know, one's eight and the other one is three months old. But the eight year old is uh, a, a, an amazing little foodie in the making in her own right. <laughs> I love that. And I think, I think Julia would have loved that. So, um, that that's wonderful, uh, to hear. So thank you for sharing that and thank you for joining us today. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks so much for the invitation and thanks so much for making the time to actually come out and, and visit us at, at Halama Canyon ranch and, um, for all your great questions and for obviously for the work you're doing, this is, a um, a conversation that I hope will, um, trickle through many, many kitchens and, and, uh, and dining rooms. Well, it's our pleasure. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, for more, you can follow at White Buffalo Land Trust on Facebook and at White underscore Buffalo underscore Land underscore Trust on Instagram. And the website is, of course, WhiteBuffaloLandTrust.org. For all the latest from the foundation, it's at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF, and I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at GBH. Thanks to my co-producer at the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Matt Patterson. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Veltorni. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Inside Julia's Kitchen is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.